Okay, if you haven't gotten a Mother's Day gift yet, you're welcome. There you go. <laughs> uh, I do want to say uh, happy Mother's Day um, uh, and, uh, and welcome. Um, uh, my name is David Cumbie. I'm the lead pastor here, and just want to say a special welcome if you're a guest or this is your first time here with us. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, for the past three months, we've been going uh, through uh, this incredible letter in Ephesians, uh, uh, in the Bible called Ephesians. It's this letter from the Apostle Paul, uh, and we've looked uh, at it and considered just the incredibly beautiful and powerful message it has for us today, um, that it reveals who God is and what he's done for us. And it reveals who we are in Jesus. And now as we've come kind of to the latter half of this letter, we're considering uh, Paul's uh, encouragement to live in light of who we are in Jesus. How do we live this life in Christ? And so that's what we're looking at. Uh, last week, we, uh, we looked at six heart motives in the first half of chapter 5. We looked at six heart motives for holiness. And this week, I want to highlight really what I would say is a gift that God gives us to help us grow in our life with him. Uh, something that we often, I think, take for granted or, or easily miss because it's so much a part of our lives, but it is a gift, and that is the gift of relationships. It's the gift of relationships. Uh, God has a purpose for your life and for my life, uh, and it is that you would become more and more, in this life, you would become more and more like Jesus. Uh, another way to put that, that you would become more and more alive as the person you were created to be in Christ. And Ephesians 1.11 reminds us that God takes everything in our life and he's working it towards that purpose. According to his will, he's working all things to that purpose in our life. He's using everything in our lives, and that includes our relationships. And here Paul is highlighting, he's focusing in on three kinds of relationships in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Marriage, family, and then work relationships. And so this morning we're going to focus just on that first one, on marriage. Uh, and then next week, we'll come to family and work. Um, and so as we focus in on marriage, I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 is where we're starting today. Um, or if you can open that up on your phone, if you've got an app, just encourage you to be able to follow along as we're looking uh, at chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Um, and as we're looking here, I just want to say, you know, as we're addressing marriage, this isn't just a word for married people. Let me say it that way. This is not just a word for people that are married. It's for all of us. And the reason I say that is because this, the same essential truth that undergirds marriage, and we're going to talk about that this morning, undergirds, I think, every relationship in our life, whether it's marriage, friendship, family, work, across the board. And so if you are taking notes, I would write this down. This is, this is kind of the main underlying idea for this morning, that through our relationships, God wants to teach us about him and make us like him. Through our relationships, God wants to teach us about him and make us like him. In other words, our relationships are a gift from God, and I want us to see them that way. Um, and so I want us to look at marriage first. What does marriage teach us about God, and how does it make us like him, or how is marriage a gift? And I want to give us two ways that I think uh, Paul highlights marriage as a gift here. And this is the first. Marriage is a gift because it points us to the goodness and grace of God. Marriage is a gift because it points us to the goodness and grace of God. Uh, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards once compared God to the sun. 
and all our relationships, including marriage, uh, to sunbeams. Uh, and what he said was marriage is kind of like the rays of, the, of light that are coming from the sun. And we can, we can see those beams of light in these relationships in, in, in something like marriage. We can see this beam of light, but it's not just meant to illuminate what we can see in our lives. It's meant to actually draw our eye up and back to the source of the light, back to the sun, back to God himself. And I like that analogy because I think it helps us kind of keep in mind what marriage actually is. Marriage is, in the language of the church, it's a sacrament. It's a sign. It's a picture. Um, it's a foretaste, you could say, of, of God and his kingdom. And when you experience the beauty and the love of marriage, you're actually experiencing the beauty and the love of God in a very real and powerful way. And again, marriage isn't the only relationship, as we'll see. This is not the only relationship which is true, but I do think it's the most intense and powerful relational experience of God's heart, God's love in this life that some, the two people can experience together. Um, and so just think about it this way. Think about what we learn or discover, encounter when it comes to love within the gift of marriage. Right? A marriage is a whole life union of a man and a woman. It is love where two human beings become one in every possible way, right? Spiritually, uh, emotionally, sexually. I mean, th th there's a oneness, right? There's an exclusiveness to this love. There's an exclusive nature, a total giving of the self to one and only one. There's an unconditional reality to, to love in marriage. It's being fully known and fully loved. Being fully known and fully loved. It's built on trust and vulnerability and intimacy. And when you look at that, when you look at what marriage is meant to be, what it was created to be, you begin to see that marriage actually does reveal the heart of God. It was made to reveal the heart of God, our oneness with God in Christ, God's self-giving love and the dying of ourselves to God, the intimate relationship, right, of the Trinity, our being fully known by God and fully loved by God. All those things point us back to the Son, to God himself. That's why Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2 here at the end of chapter 5 in Ephesians. Verse 31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 19. And what Paul says about that is he says, that's a mystery. And it's a profound mystery. Why is it a mystery? He says, because it refers to Christ and his church. So think about what Paul's saying here, about what marriage actually does. God, uh, in other words, didn't just kind of stumble onto marriage and think, wow, that's really cool. I, I bet there's a really great analogy that we could use in a sermon one day that really kind of highlights my love for people in marriage. Wouldn't that be cool? I hope somebody picks up on that, right? No, God actually created marriage with this in mind. It was purposeful. It was intentional that he made marriage to give us a taste, in other words, of his divine love. How incredible is that? How, how much more beautiful and powerful an image or an understanding of marriage is that than what so often we settle for when it comes to marriage? Marriage is a ray of sunlight that comes directly from God, but points us back to God, draws us to God himself. That's the intent, ultimately, of the gift of marriage. Now, marriage is a ray of sunlight, but it's very important. This is very important that we don't get this wrong. It's a ray of sunlight, but it is not the sun. <laughs> marriage is not the sun. Your spouse is not the sun. Marriage can teach you about God, 
but it cannot and should not replace God in your life. Now, I say that because some of you guys married some amazing people, right? I mean, just incredible. Beautiful, handsome people, funny people, caring, brilliant. I mean, just on down the line. But I'm here to tell you just a little secret. (laughs) Your spouse is not perfect. I know. You're shocked. It's shocking. I just don't want this to surprise you one day when you stumble into this in your marriage. The truth is that you are and your spouse are both very broken, very sinful people, right? That's the truth. That's the reality. And we need, we need to be healed. We need to be forgiven. We need to know what love is, love that goes beyond what I can give or what my spouse can give. And so the truth is your spouse is, is very broken, and you are very broken, and you need Christ. And so maybe you thought, you know, if I could just find the right person in this life, then I could experience love and wholeness, what I've really been longing for. Maybe you thought, or you think even today, if my spouse would just become that person I know they could be, right? They're almost there, or they're really far away. If they would just kind of work on it, you know, uh, then I would, I, would, I would be happy. The truth is there's no human being in this world that will ever make you feel whole. There is no human being in this world that will ever make you feel whole. People are insecure and lonely and wounded, and they get married, and they don't magically become confident and fulfilled and whole when that happens. No spouse can make you whole. Only God can do that. Only God can make you whole, and God wants to use your marriage to help you see that. In fact, it's part of the gift of marriage, right, that marriage acts like a mirror and that through your spouse, you're you're actually seeing yourself more clearly, your brokenness and your sin and your deep need for God. It's a gift because it will lay bare your need for God and free you to look at your spouse not as the source of your identity and fulfillment and security. It will allow you to turn to God for that and then love your spouse in response to who God says you are and what he's doing in your life. It will show you, in other words, that you don't need a relationship with the perfect spouse to be your full and complete self. You need a relationship with a good and gracious God. So marriage is a gift. It's a gift because it points us to the goodness and grace of God. So that's the first thing marriage does. Second thing I observe here is that marriage is a gift because Uh, through the roles of marriage, we better understand the nature of God, of who he is and how he functions. Through the roles of marriage, we better understand the nature of God. All right, so here comes the minefield, right? Roles in marriage and submission. That's what we're going to talk about next, okay? So just brace yourselves, get uncomfortable now. Because we need to talk about these two ideas. They're incredibly uh, unpopular to even talk about, right, in our culture. They're very misunderstood. They've been often misapplied, even within the church, when it comes to gender roles and submission. But we, we need to talk about it. And Paul talks about it, and thank God he does. Jesus talked about it, too. And we, so we need to look and see what, is, what are we learning here about the roles of wives and husbands and, and what that looks like in a godly marriage. So 
before we get into what the text actually says here, two wives and then two husbands, what I want to do is I want to give you kind of three foundational truths that I think you have to receive what Paul says in light of these truths. And the first is this. We are all called, we are all called to submit to Christ and one another. Before Paul says anything about marriage, relationships, or the roles of husbands and wives, where does he begin? Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is written to everyone, right? Did you catch that? Verse 21 is to everyone. Whether you are married or single, whether you are a husband or a wife, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love what John Stott says in his amazing Ephesians commentary that I highly commend to you. This is what he says. He says, the truth is we've got all kinds of negative ideas about submission uh, floating around in our head. And verse 21, he basically says verse 21 is meant to kind of disinfect us from those misunderstandings about submission so that we can actually receive what we're going to hear in the rest of the chapter. Submission has been terribly abused, terribly abused. But that doesn't mean submission itself is wrong. It means the abuse of submission and poor teaching on it and poor practice is wrong. It does not excuse abuse, humiliation, humiliation, exploitation, or oppression. Submission is not an indication of inferiority. Submission is choosing to exhibit Christ-like sacrifice for the sake of the other, and we are all called to it. Okay, so that's the first thing. We are all called to submit to Christ and to one another. Second, we are all called to love as Christ loved. We're all called to love as Christ loved. The teaching and the life of Jesus, including his death on the cross for all people, affirmed at least three things about all people. Their dignity, their equality, and the unity of people in Christ. We are one holy people in Christ. Jesus' leadership and authority were expressed chiefly in love. He felt a deep, deep responsibility to serve and care for others, not a license to, as he put it, lord authority over people. If you want to look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, for Jesus' teaching on how to use authority, I would encourage you to look there. So second, we are called to love as Christ loved. Third, roles in marriage are rooted in God's good created order. Roles in marriage are rooted in God's good created order. In verse 31, Paul anchors his teaching on roles and submission in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis teaches us that man and woman are both created in the image of God, but in different ways. That from the beginning, they have had equal dignity as God-like beings, but different roles. Contrary to what our culture claims, there are there are differences between male and female, between men and women. Significant differences that actually matter. Equal, in other words here, does not mean identical. And we've gotten that confused in our culture. In creation, God establishes a certain leadership role in marriage as a matter of order. As Paul says, we are called to submit in the different relationships in our lives, including within marriage. There's an order. And he says that, he clues us into that because he repeatedly says, as unto the Lord, or in the Lord, or in Christ, we submit. This is his design for marriage. 
that wives submit to their husbands. Not because men are more qualified or capable. Leadership is a responsibility entrusted to men, to husbands particularly, that is meant to reflect God's loving care for us through his good order and design for creation. Both leadership and submission are exercised in humble recognition of that divine goodness and ordering. Okay, that was a lot. But that, all that was important, right? Because these three things have to be understood to receive what he's going to say next. That we are all called to submit, we are all called to love like Christ, and that roles in marriage are actually rooted not in culture, right, but in actually in God's created order. So let's look at what Paul says to wives and husbands. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, sum, should submit in everything to their husbands. So first, this word to wives. <clears throat> first, I just want to point this out. Wives are to submit to who? Their own husbands. Why does he say, is that not self-evident? <laughs> to your own husband, not somebody else's husband? I mean, I'm not sure exactly why he put that there, but I think at least we can say this. This is not a universal command for all women in their relationships with all men. I think that's important. I think there are implications from what this teaching says and from Genesis in that direction. But this teaching from Paul is about wives and their husbands. It's about the marriage relationship. So I just think we need to be careful to see that. It's not universal commands for all women to submit to all men. It's about the marriage relationship. Second, wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Paul explicitly connects the two, submitting to husbands, submitting to the Lord. When a wife submits to Christ as Lord, she submits to his teachings, to his call, to his teachings, to God's created order. Wives do not submit to their husbands because their husbands deserve it or because they themselves are inferior, but I think ultimately because it's God's good order and God instructs wives to do so. It's an act of faith to submit to your husband. When wives humbly humble themselves and entrust themselves to God's care by entrusting themselves to their husbands, God is glorified in that. That's what the scripture is teaching us here. This is a picture, again, of divine love being worked out within relationship. John Stott says this. He says, Christian submission is not coercion. It is free. Paul's day, in Paul's day, women had no status and very few rights, but they are accorded here by the gospel as free moral agents, and their submission to their husband is a decision that she makes. Right, get that that the wife actually makes as a free moral agent before the Lord in obedience and in faith to the Lord. And so when a person, he says, is voluntarily amenable to another, gives way to that person, and places themselves at that person's service, they show a greater amount of dignity and actually freedom than an individual who cannot bear to be a helper to anyone but themselves. So Ephesians 5 is not about blind obedience or the breaking of a wife's will. It is a Christ-like act of love in which one person helps another by renouncing their own rights and faithfulness to Christ. 
Submission, in short, Paul is saying, is a faithful act of love unto God. That's why submission never means acquiescing to abuse or to cruelty or ungodly behavior. Those things are not in line with submission to Christ or the life that Christ calls us to. This is a submission to God and his good and perfect will. Submission is more than agreeing. It's surrendering and ultimately surrendering to the Lord. So that's, that's the word to wives that he gives. What about the husbands? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. In that same way that he just described, husbands should love their wives. They should also love them as their own bodies, he says, who loves his wife Loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Again, pointing us to something beyond marriage, because why? We are members of his body, the body of Jesus. So word to husbands. Again, first, just a quick little observation. Um, It just really stands out to me that Paul has a lot more to say to men here than he does to women about the work we have to do. And I think we need to hear it. I think Paul understands, right, that we need to hear what he's going to say as husbands, and we need to hear it very clearly. Right, so Paul has a lot to say to husbands, and we need this help. And so right off the bat, I want to notice, too, that submission of wives is not paired with the authority of the husband. Isn't that interesting? It seems like natural progression would be, oh, wives submit, and guys be in charge. That's not what Paul says. He says, wives submit and husbands love. Husbands love. How? Not just as being kind of a sweet, thoughtful guy that brings her flowers every once in a while, but as Christ loved the church. What kind of love is that? Paul says, Very clearly what kind of love that is. It's a sacrificial love that sanctifies and cleanses. In other words, it's a love that came at great cost to Jesus himself. Jesus, the bridegroom, expressed his great love for the bride, the church, by doing whatever was necessary to restore her full beauty, free of spiritual spots or wrinkles, as Paul says here, and giving her the freedom to be who she was created to be in Christ. That's what Jesus did for the, on the cross for the church. He gave his life. He died for the bride. And Paul says that's how, that's, you want to know how a husband loves his wife? That's how a husband loves his wife. A husband's leadership should never stifle or crush his wife or keep her from being who God created her to be. His love should do the opposite. His love should encourage and empower her to develop her full potential under God, so that she becomes more and more like Christ. Again, that's the ultimate goal that God has for all of us. And so we're coming alongside what the Lord is doing in the lives of our wives by walking with them and leading them in that process. Paul says husbands are to love their wives like their own bodies even. Just, I think it's just a bonus. He just kind of throws that in. If you're not getting it, think about it this way. 
You're one flesh with this person, right? So loving yourself, loving your body, loving your flesh is the same as it's pretty much loving your wife. Those things go together. He says that no one hates their own body. They love their body, and so you should love your wife. We're to love her as we love ourselves. We are to want for our wives the fullness of the life in Christ that we want for ourselves. Husbands, our greatest hope is that our wives would become like Christ. That's our greatest hope for them. A few weeks ago, I, uh, I went on a walk in our neighborhood with, with David Jr., who's our ten, my 10-year-old son, my oldest son. And um, it was one of these, I mean, these don't happen like all the time, so don't get the wrong impression, but we were just having this like amazing like conversation on this walk. And so we're like walking down the street, and I'm just like, hey, you're about to turn 11. So it's, it's a whole new decade. You've got a decade of life. You're about to start another decade. And we're talking about that, and he's like, yeah. And, I, and, and he's like, what's going to happen in, in the next 10 years, Dad? I was like, well, you're going to become a man. You know, we had this whole, like, father-son conversation about becoming a man. And I asked him, I said, what, what is it, like, if you think ahead, like, what is it when you think about becoming a man, what's one thing that you want to really kind of learn how to do as a man? And he thought for, like, a couple of seconds. And you know what word he came up with? Responsibility. My 10-year-old son. <laughs> man, he's infinitely wise, my son. <laughs> because he's right on the money. I mean, he literally said responsibility, and he nailed it. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying to be a man, to be a husband, is to lead by taking spiritual responsibility for your wife, for your children. That's what it means to be a husband and a father. It means putting your wife's needs above your own. It means looking for opportunities to serve and not to be served. It means being the first to confess, being the first to repent, being the first to forgive, being the first to show grace. My friend John Yates says, and it's always stuck with me, he says, marriage runs on a triple-A battery, appreciation, affection, and attention. Man, if you get those three things, you're doing a great job leading your wife spiritually, taking responsibility. Appreciation, affection, attention. Being intentional, in other words, to care for her and create an environment in your home where your wife can thrive spiritually and in every other way. Taking spiritual responsibility in your marriage means remembering that your wife learns from God, uh, learns about God from you. Let that sink in. Your wife learns about God from you, the way you live your life, the way you treat her. And you're supposed to learn how to be like God as you love her and lead her. So you're becoming more like Christ. We need uh, the ministry of men and women in our church. <clears throat> we have amazing women in our church who are leaders. I just want to say that uh, because, one, it's true. Two, we probably don't say that enough. And three, I have to say a few things to the men in the church and really, this is men in the church, capital C Church, not just our church. Um, men, we lead by taking spiritual responsibility for our families and for our wives. And we need to own that. We need to step up when it comes to that. I, I was really encouraged a, a few weeks ago, before the service, there's been a group gathering over in the other building to, to pray. Every, every Sunday for about the last two months to pray for this gathering. And God's been answering that prayer. 
It's just been amazing. We, I've talked about it with Ryan. I've talked about it with some members of the leadership council. Like it's just God is answering prayers as we pray into this gathering of worship. And I was back there making a copy and I, at the room across the halls where people have been gathering to pray. And I just have to tell you, I peeked in there and it blew me away. And here's why it blew me away. There were, I think, seven men, seven men in that room praying, gathering to pray, coming 30 or 45 minutes early to pray. Now, that, that to me is spiritual leadership in this family and where that comes from is when there's spiritual leadership at home and in your life. That is a picture of what we're after because there's no glory in a back room over there praying. I mean, you wouldn't even know about it if I hadn't said it. Those men are there because they're moved by the Lord to be in a place where they're serving this community and they're gathering to pray and seek the Lord. So praise God. I just say we need more of that in the church. We need more men who are willing to step up and take spiritual responsibility for their family, for this family. And we have men who are doing that, and we want more. And so I would say men need to lead. Men need to take responsibility. And I know it's Mother's Day. But I, I thought about this. I was like, maybe, maybe there's some takeaways here for the dads that would be really big gifts to moms, right? And we think about it that way. You dads... I think if you really hear what I'm about to say, it might be one of the best Mother's Day gifts you could ever give your wife. <clears throat> you need to take spiritual responsibility for your children also, right? You granddads, you uncles, you need to take spiritual responsibility for the children in your families. Men need to take spiritual responsibility and not just make sure they get to church. That is not enough. I just wanna say that. That is not enough. Let's just do some quick math. Okay, I was thinking about this. Uh, let's say you came to church every Sunday for a whole year. I mean, every Sunday you are right here and your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, nephews, whoever, they are with you, they're here. Every Sunday, how many hours do you think they would be spending in kids' time or diving hearing about Jesus and learning from the Bible? Any guesses at how many hours in a whole year? Maybe 35 or 40 tops, let's just say. So let's just be really generous. 40 hours uh, in kids' time or diving, hearing about Jesus in the Bible. Dads, on average, how much time do you think you have with your kids during the year, on average? Any guesses? Two to 3,000 hours. That's the guess. That's somewhere between five to seven hours a day, all told. Maybe it's a little less than that, but you get the point, right? Who has more time with your kids? The church, what happens here on a Sunday, or you? Who has more influence spiritually on your children than you? And so I just want to encourage you to consider that. Your family needs you to step up and lead, and I know you feel inadequate to that. Many of us feel inadequate. I feel inadequate to that. I feel overwhelmed by that charge from the Lord. I know it's tough, tough, but it is what we signed on for when we had children, whether you realized it or not. You are responsible for the spiritual well-being of your wife and of your children. And to a lesser degree, for you grandparents, I would say the same thing is true. There's a responsibility that you bear. And so I would say where to start. Start praying for your wife. 
If you're not praying for your wife on a regular basis, start praying for your wife. If you're not praying for your kids, start praying for your kids. Get on your knees. Open the Bible. Talk with your kids about God. Worship with them. And be here. Be a part of this community. Be serving here with your kids. Make it a priority. Lead. Let me, let me wrap this up. Wives are called to submit. Husbands are called to love. Why? Because through these equally important roles in marriage, God is teaching us about himself and making us like him. That's what's happening in these relationships. And so again, we're going to look at this next week in other contexts, in family and in work. But through relationships, God wants to teach us about who he is and his love for us and about how he's making us like him. I want to close um, with a, a news story that somebody sent me this week. Uh, and I just, I love this because it's really simple, but it's really beautiful. And I think it, it just offers up this really amazing picture of what love and submission actually look and feel like within a marriage. And this is, this is a, it's just a short article. I'm just going to read it to you. This is what it says. The man uh, recently visited a beauty school to learn how to do his wife's hair and makeup because she was having problems doing it herself as her vision deteriorated. The director of Del Mar College of Hair and Aesthetics in Red Deer, in Canada, um, Carrie Hanna, told Red Deer Advocate, because that's the local paper, that the man showed up at random and asked for help. She told the local paper that the man asked if they were offering courses, and she said, we sure are. Brittany Smith, a student at the Canadian school, shared adorable photos of her teaching this man some beauty skills on Facebook back in April. In her post that's now gone viral, Smith said the man's wife is unable to curl her own hair, that she often burns herself. And so the husband stepped up to the plate to learn how to use a curling iron. Smith said she and others at the school taught the man how to do volume curls on short hair, how to protect his wife's skin from being burned with the iron, and even how to put mascara on. And then it says a few other things, but it ends with this. And I thought this was incredible. The husband has chosen to remain anonymous, but the magazine identified him as a 79-year-old man who's been married to his wife for 50 years. 50 years. 50 years. This is how he's loving his wife. This is what it looks like to love and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's beautiful and it's powerful. And it reminds us this is, this is how God loves us. Because marriage is a picture. Let's pray.